read the text for us this morning? Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 1610. If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen behind me. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sowed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. So as you know, we've been going through this series about becoming his church. And as we repeat each time that, that this, is, this is like the heart's cry of so many people here at our church, and it's certainly the heart's cry of your pastors. We want to be his church. We're not interested in being the cool church. We're not interested in being the church for the mature and you know, uh, you know, senior adults. We're not, we're not interested in being you know, how, you know, the size of the church, whether it's small and cozy or big and expansive. Whatever God's gonna do with all of those things, he's gonna do. But what we wanna be is we wanna be his church. And so when we've gone through the book of Acts, we've seen these consistent characteristics of God's church that we want to see in our church. We want to see people that, that are in love with God's word. We are unapologetically in love with God's word. We, we, we want to study God's word more. Our sermons, you don't hear a lot of you know, pithy quotes from popular you know, people out there. Instead, we are trying to focus on God's word. You don't necessarily hear like lots of long illustrations about my kids or my wife or my dog. No, we want to focus on God's word. 
And I love that about our church. It's one of the sad things I miss about COVID, not that, not that I liked COVID, but I remember kind of in the midst of that when we really didn't know when it was going to end, there was a group of about 30 to 50 of you that, that would be at Sunday morning Bible study, either in my class or another class, you'd be online for worship, you would come Monday nights to our studies on Monday nights, and then you would come Wednesday nights. It was that, what we were talking about, like when we really understand God's word, we hunger for more. And some of you, when John came on board and started doing growth groups, then you added Friday. It's like you couldn't get enough of God's word. You couldn't get enough of being with his people. And even though that's, you know, kind of abated a little bit, it still continues. But his church knows his word, is obedient to his word. But we also see in the book of Acts that that his church is is filled with the spirit. And that the primary evidence of that spirit is, is God's impossible love. That unconditional, kind of crazy radical love that that is unlike anything we have in, in, in our human existence. It's impossible. It's the only way we can meet his impossible standard of loving everyone perfectly all the time. And we see that they're doing that. We're seeing that they're, they're not just in love with God, they're in love with each other. But we also see that they're on mission. Not all of them are on mission in terms of going, but all of them are on mission in that they understand and they support what's going on. Last week, the whole idea of, the, of that big dispute over whether the Gentile Christians needed to be circumcised and follow the rest of the Mosaic Law, that, you know, that dispute wasn't just about you know, trying to get rid of those, those old legalists. No. It was understanding that it's at the very heart of the gospel, but it's also the heart of the gospel being taken to the entire world. What is the gospel? That's what they were defining. But they were defining it so that they could communicate it around the world. They had no idea that there was a whole part of the world they didn't know existed. But just in the part that they knew existed, They already understood that if we don't have a clear definition, a clear understanding of what the gospel is, when it starts to spread, it's going to change. And we know they faced problems from the very beginning. They they faced internal problems. They faced external problems. You know, people had to adjust. They had to adjust because before, like, if you were following the Jewish faith, you just pretty much hung out with people following the Jewish faith, whether they be ethnically Jewish or Gentiles. And everybody could kind of hang out. But then all of a sudden, there's these Hellenized Jews that start showing up. And these are the people that a lot of the traditional Jewish people before they become, became Christians would have thought were kind of like sellouts. Like, they're just rejecting their, their past and embracing, you know, whatever's new and recent. 
and now they're there. And then they go to the Samaritans. And the Samaritans, they had had this long-standing feud with the Samaritans. Yeah, there were some, there were some, there were some like ethnic issues there, but the bigger issue was the religious issue that, that the Samaritans felt they were following true Judaism. That their place of, of worship was the true place. That their Pentateuch, their first, what we would call the first five books of the, of the Old Testament was true. And now they're welcoming these people as brothers and sisters. And then, then the Gentiles started coming. And what happened real quickly was the traditional Jewish people who had converted to Christianity quickly became the minority in the church. Of course there's going to be tension. Of course there's going to be confusion, not understanding. But as we saw, the church, because it's committed to God's word and it's, and it's filled with the spirit and it's committed to being united in Christ, they're able to get through. And what we see in these disagreements, whether they're big disagreements or small disagreements, what we see these, in these disagreements is that they're able to get through them because of the depth of their relationship to God, their relationship to his word, and their relationship to each other. It is shallow relationships that shatter at even the slightest disagreement. As Baptists, we do this so much, we actually make jokes about it. Now, a lot of you didn't grow up Baptist, so you don't know the jokes. You know, but we make jokes about churches splitting. You know, we make jokes about, you know, there's this one about this guy, and I'm not gonna tell you it in a funny way, I'm just gonna tell you it quickly, but he's, he's, on, a, he's on a deserted island, and he's built like this church, and he's there. And so when he gets discovered, somebody comes and they notice there's another, there's another church building just a, you know, a few hundred yards away. And they ask him, why do you have two? And he goes, oh, because, you know, we had a split. And so I started a new church. And that, you know, that's, that's what we become famous for. And the things we argue about, the things that can cause our, our community f- to fall apart, well, it can come from shallow relationships. But let me tell you something about what these healthy, deep relationships, they can help us get through these disagreements, but deep relationships, deep relationships come from deep relationships to Christ and deep relationships in Christ. We, we cannot just try to be better friends. We cannot just try to be, you know, closer to one another. We cannot just try to, you know, kind of, you know, make our own human bonds work. If we're going to have deeper relationships in our church, they come from our deeper relationship to Christ and then our deeper relationships in Christ don't have time to unpack that. I just want you to kind of let it kind of sit in your head so you can kind of stew on it for a while. 
But that's what we see in this early church. They face persecution we don't know. They face internal pressures we don't know. And yet they come through it in unity. And so the church had just resolved in chapter 15. They had just resolved this, the greatest threat to its unity, the greatest threat to its gospel. And now we read about Paul and Barnabas ready to go out on the mission field and they have a disagreement. And their disagreement is over what to do with that John Mark guy. You guys remember from the first missionary journey. First missionary journey, Paul, Barnabas, John Mark, there probably were others. They go to the island of Cyprus and they actually have great success there. Barnabas is from Cyprus. He knows people there. John Mark, who's Barnabas' cousin, is probably also from Cyprus or familiar with it. Everything seems to be going well. When they leave Cyprus and they get back to, to the mainland and they're about to head off on the most difficult part of their journey, if you remember, it was a 100-mile journey uphill, difficult part of their journey through barren lands, through lands where there were, there were bandits that would constantly rob travelers. When they got to the hard part, John Mark's like, I'm good, going home, and he leaves. Well, Paul and Barnabas disagree. Barnabas is like, come on, let's bring this guy, let's give him a chance. Paul's like, no, this guy abandoned us. He left us. He couldn't finish the job. There's this sharp disagreement. Even now, when I just say that, most of you are dividing yourselves up into groups that you don't know. You're like, Barnabas was right. John Mark just needed another chance. And others of you are like, Paul, too bad. You had your chance. You wimped out. Sorry, we can't keep carrying you. We divide up into those camps, and that's what happened with Paul and Barnabas. Luke doesn't give us any idea about who's right. You know, whenever I talk about disagreements, you know, there's four possibilities, you know, when it's just two sides. There's four possibilities. One side's right, right? So either you're right or the other side's right. That's two possibilities. But the other two possibilities is both of you are wrong, and the both of you are right. We have no idea here. But here's what we do know. The result of this is two mission teams go out. Two mission teams go out and continue to do the work. We do know this. Timothy, who is going to become one of the really important members of the early church, he's connected with. We also are going to later on hear about how Paul and John Mark reconcile so much, so much, that when Paul writes one of his last letters, he's in prison, and he's, you know, what we understand from church history is that he's going to be executed soon, and he knows it. And when he writes a letter to Timothy, he says, John Mark, is one of my most trusted, dependable helpers. So we know amazing things happen where this reconciliation takes place. Later on in the book of Acts, you're going to hear about Paul and Barnabas ministering together again. So they have this disagreement, but they continue to go and they continue to serve, 
and they eventually reconcile. And then when Paul's on the journey, again, they meet, he meets Timothy, and then they have this, we have this really weird kind of phrasing that you don't expect to see. You know, they're trying to do ministry as they go. They're just trying to, wherever they, you know, they'd gone before and then other places, and then all of a sudden, again, Luke doesn't tell us what happened. He just says they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak or to do ministry in, he says Asia, which he probably means Asia Minor, area we would call Turkey. This huge area they're not going to go to. In fact, they're going to bypass all that area and go right to this place called Troas so that they can go to Macedonia. That's the story. That's what we see here. We see the church continuing to be on mission, and in this case, kind of embodied by the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. So what do we get from this? What do we understand? What do we understand about what his church does? Well, first of all, When there is disagreement, his church continues on mission. One of the things that that I've seen before, whenever, you know, I've lived long enough to see churches that fight, and I've seen factions break off from churches. And I'll tell you, rarely if ever do both sides stay on mission, and sadly, sometimes both sides fall. Sometimes they just become so obsessed with each other that they forget that they have a mission that God's given them. Sometimes one continues on, but the other group just kind of disappears. You see, we're not talking about disagreement over essential doctrine. We saw what happened when you have disagreement over essential doctrine. We need to understand what essential doctrine is. We need to uphold it. We need to follow it, believe it. That's who we are. But whether to take somebody on a mission trip, it's a little different. But there is this thing that comes from disagreements, this problem that comes from disagreements that that is attached to our mission. And that problem is this, how we disagree as Christians, how we disagree as Christians affects our witness. A lot of churches, and I would say not just churches in Hawaii, but a lot of churches just decide then, well, we don't wanna mess up the witness, so we're just not gonna publicly disagree. So if, if someone doesn't like something that's going on at the church, and they think like, you know what, I'm not gonna really talk about it, I don't wanna say I disagree with it. They just kind of either stay and don't say anything, or they just try to quietly leave. Because they're so terrified of disagreement. Make no mistake what the text says, there's a sharp disagreement. They do not agree. There was probably some heated discussions and they needed to take place. And we don't know, was Paul's kind of 
tough love approach correct? Was, was Barnabas's more like, hey, let me put my arm around you and walk you through this again? We don't know. But when we're not talking about essential doctrine, then we need to disagree in the way that reflects who we are in Christ. You know, one of the statistics that, that you probably heard is that children of divorced parents, they're more likely to get divorced. And it's because they often lack this one, this one skill, and that is healthy conflict resolution. Because what did they see their parents do? When they couldn't resolve conflict, what did they do? They just left. That's what they know. And I think sometimes as, as parents, we, we sometimes want to put out that, that image of us as parents that, that you know, we never disagree. And I think that has the same effect as, as you know, with children of divorced parents. Because if you never disagree, then your children never get to see healthy conflict resolution. Well, that's the same thing that happens in the church. I'm not saying you should voice every little thing you don't like or every little thing you don't disagree with, but when we don't disagree, when we don't go through a process of healthy conflict resolution, no one knows what it looks like. Everyone thinks the only thing that, that really we can do is just go our separate ways, agree to disagree. We don't work through healthy conflict resolution. And just like I was saying last week, healthy conflict resolution is like when we disagree about perhaps like music. And if, if I ask you, why do you like that kind of music? What is it about... I still may not like the music you have that, that you like, but I understand you more. I understand you that if you tell me like the reason you like country music is because you know your dad, that's what he always played for all of us old people on his eight track player in a truck, you know? That tells me something about you admire your dad that music connects you to something. But if I just tell you, I think country music's terrible, I'm not even going to get to know that about you. If, when we just start rejecting things instead of using them as opportunities to get to know one another more, all we end up with is, is people taking sides. Healthy conflict resolution does the same thing. The Bible talks about reconciliation. Reconciliation means not only that we resolve conflicts, but that we reconcile relationships. And here is the definition of a healthy, reconciled relationship among Christians. It's not that the relationship goes back to how it was before. It means the relationship is better and stronger. Because through that process, we now know each other better. All of you who are married, you all know when you had healthy conflict resolution and when you had unhealthy conflict resolution. 
healthy conflict resolution led you to a deeper relationship with your spouse. Unhealthy just created boundaries and territories. You know, she doesn't like that I throw my dirty clothes on the floor. You know, what she sees won't hurt her. So we find places she doesn't go, right? I mean, we never resolve. We, we didn't grow closer. Oh yeah, we don't fight about it anymore. We know this is gonna become, this is eventually going to be reconciled. We know that Paul and Barnabas are eventually gonna to serve together and John Mark is going to become one of Paul's most trusted helpers. But at, at, at this point, they disagree, but they stay on mission. They stay on mission. And I want you not to miss this. Staying on mission doesn't mean Paul goes, well, fine, you take John Mark, I'm going to go off by myself. No. Paul understands Christian mission is, is never a lone ranger endeavor. It's never going off by yourself. He puts together a team, and we know of at least three that are on this team. Silas, then Timothy, and Luke. They stay on mission. They don't stay on mission to try to show each other. They don't go in competition. Barnabas goes to Cyprus. Probably because Barnabas went, you know what? That's baby steps with John Mark. He could handle Cyprus last time. Let's go back there. Let's go back to where there was success. And then let's kind of, you know, help him grow and, help, and, and move on. And, and Paul doesn't go, you know what? I'm going to go to Cyprus too and, and show you how you're doing it all wrong. No, he goes, no, I'm going to go and I'm going to go to this, this, this other area in Galatia and Phrygia and all these other places we visited. We stay on mission. We continue to do his work with the same spirit of love, same desire to make Jesus' name known and make his name great. The second thing we see here is that rather surprising part when, when he finally meets, you know, when, he, when, he, when he comes here with Timothy and he says, I want Timothy to go on a trip with me. I want him to, to minister with me. But he says, Timothy, you need to be circumcised. Now, if we just dropped into this story right here, you know, we'd be like, okay. But what, what did we just see earlier? We just saw earlier that they had had this huge council, this huge dispute that said, that said, Gentiles, you don't have to be circumcised. Paul himself wrote in Galatians chapter 5, he wrote circumcision or uncircumcision. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And it looks so weird that Luke mentions it right here. Timothy is going to be circumcised. Interestingly, what happened at the Council of Jerusalem, and what's happening here with Timothy, Paul is being incredibly con consistent, not inconsistent. He's not being contradictory. He's applying this principle, and this principle applied in these different situations come to what appears to us as opposite actions. And the principle is this. Nothing stands in the way 
of the spread of the gospel. What his church does, if we're gonna be his church, we wanna remove barriers to the gospel. Most of you guys know that when we were in Texas, that we were helping kind of revitalize this church, and one of the things we wanted to do was we wanted to remove barriers for special needs families. We wanted to remove barriers for children and others that had special needs. And so that's, you know, that's what we set about to do, to try to remove those barriers. Again, we're not trying to compromise the gospel. We're not trying to make the gospel easier to accept, no. We still wanted to preach God's word. We still wanted to be the church. But we wanted to remove those barriers that most churches, not really intentionally, but most churches had set up. You see, in the Council of Jerusalem, the barrier that would have been for a lot of Gentiles and people like Timothy, who was part Gentile, the barrier would have been to have required circumcision. It wasn't just that it distorted the gospel, it did distort the gospel, and that was bad enough. But it also created this barrier, unnecessary barrier. And so the ruling was, let's not have stumbling blocks for Gentiles. No circumcision required. However, we know what Paul would do. Whenever Paul would go to a city, the first place he would go is to the synagogue. And that's where he would begin his ministry. Even when he said, my ministry is to the Gentiles, he still went to cities and started in the synagogues where, where the, the Jewish people would meet. He would go there. And he knew that in the Jewish mindset, the fact that, that Timothy's mother was Jewish, they considered him Jewish. Paul seemed to know that Timothy wasn't just going to be a guy that went on a trip with him and then, you know, never did anything else. I don't think Paul knew the future, but I think Paul looked at Timothy and thought, this guy is going to be an incredible leader in the church. And both for the immediate ministry that Paul was going to do and the ministry that Timothy was going to have, he knew that Timothy would have a problem ministering to Jewish people if he wasn't circumcised. So in Timothy's situation, not being circumcised was a stumbling block to the Jews. Not being circumcised was another barrier that they had to overcome if they were going to hear the gospel. Paul is so focused on the gospel, so focused on the gospel, that, that he, can, he can apply this principle that to a lot of people might have thought to be you know, inconsistent, hypocritical, and Paul's like, no, it's not. There's these, these stumbling blocks that the church has 
placed in the way of people receiving the gospel. You know, one of the things that, that they try to, to help, you know, people do, especially people who've spent their whole life in church, is to learn that a lot of the language we use in church is, it doesn't have the same meaning outside church. And in fact, some people don't even know what the words mean. It's why I'm always careful when I talk about um, God's love. Because the world has this understanding of what love is. And there's this, this stumbling block that, that if I just talk about that God is love, that I can get a lot of amens or I agree with you from people who aren't Christians. Because they believe that, you know what? That fits with my agreement. I mean, with my understanding, my beliefs that all religions are about love. So, hey, we can add Christianity now. Good. I've created a stumbling block to the gospel. I think the, the kind of simplification of the gospel can actually be a barrier to hearing the gospel. There's a reason, there's a reason that among Christians, and let me just make it more narrow, among Christians, evangelicals, who regularly attend church, their concept of the gospel is that Jesus came to die for my sins, if I accept him, he will forgive me of my sins, I have a place in heaven, and for the rest of my life, I'll try to be as good as I can be. That's not the gospel. Oh, there's elements of the gospel there, but it's not the gospel, and people have believed, I don't wanna call it a false, false gospel because there's nothing in that that's false. What's wrong is what's missing. And what's missing is it's not good enough to just want to be good enough. You cannot be good enough. It's what you'll hear me say so many times when I preach. Christianity is, is the only faith, the only belief system that starts off with this. What's expected of you, you cannot do. It is impossible. You cannot be good enough. You cannot merit your salvation. You cannot save yourself in any way. Even after you become a Christian, even though the New Testament tells us again and again, be diligent, bring your best effort, do as much as you can to follow Christ, it still says, what makes, that, what makes that valuable, what makes that effective is what Christ is doing in you. There, there is no this, this therapeutic God who's there to help you through all your struggles and all your problems, and the deal is that you'll try to be as moral as you can. It's a barrier. It's a barrier so much that when I, when I preach, when I express the full sense of the gospel, there's many people that are like, hey, that's fine for you. It's fine for you. 
fine for you and your people, but you know what? I like this version better. The part that leaves out all those things. It's barriers. We create barriers the other way too by making it overly complicated, overly complex. We need to be asking ourselves, what stumbling blocks does our church have for people to understand? And what stumbling blocks do I have? Some of our stumbling blocks are we never speak. We never talk about the gospel. That's our stumbling block. Nobody's ever going to know the gospel because we never say anything. For some of us, you may, as my children have reminded me, be afflicted with my resting face is a mad face. Mad face comes in really, it, you know, when Cheryl and I, she has the opposite. Her resting face is happy face. You never know if she wants to kill you because she's always smiling. But, but if we're walking, when we used to go through like, you know, exhibits at the NBC arena, we'd, we'd be walking, like not one single vendor would talk to me. But they're all like after her. Hey, you know, showing her their product. Sometimes the stumbling block is that we're not approachable. People don't think that they can even talk to us about things. And sometimes our stumbling block is that we don't understand. We've accepted like a, like a what we consider like an adequate level of understanding for our own lives, but we don't understand enough to tell anyone else. Paul kind of sums up this principle in one of his letters to the Corinthians when he says, I have become all things to all people so that I might win some. What Paul is saying is I will never compromise the gospel. I will never compromise the high demands of the gospel, nor will I compromise the incredible grace and love that's found in the gospel. Never compromise. But I will become all things to all people so that I might win some. The last point we see here, and we see this in Paul. We see this in Paul as, as he's, you know, he's, it's kind of like, you know, he goes and he goes and he goes to the first couple places and it's just like he imagined. Just like he imagined. He goes there, he reconnects with the churches there, and then he tries to go to these other places and he cannot. It's just the Spirit forbids him. And he keeps going through Asia Minor and nowhere can he go. Can't stop. And finally he ends up in Troas. And what we see about Paul is really the spirit that we should all have as Christians and we should have as a church. And that is this, that, that Paul has this gospel sharing attitude. This gospel-sharing attitude that is so strong in him, it's so strong on him that it takes the Holy Spirit to stop him. Most of us are the opposite. I can tell you I'm the same way. Most of us, we need the Holy Spirit to talk us into sharing the gospel, to create the atmosphere, you know, the perfect situation. You know, you sitting in a quiet place, somebody coming up to you and saying, can you tell me about Jesus? Okay, then I'll share, right? 
Set it up for me, God. Put it on a tee. Or even better, you know what? Can you pray with me? I want to, I want to receive Christ. You know, that's like, okay, awesome. I'll do it then. I'll share with you a real example of just a few weeks ago. That, and I'm not going to tell you it's the first time. But it's one of my things where I'm like, it just tells me in that moment I, was, I didn't have Paul's attitude of gospel sharing. But I, was, I just parked my truck and I was walking into the office on the sidewalk. And this mother who had like, I thought it was 27 children, but there were actually just three. But she was walking and one of the kids, little kids was like, had, I didn't pick it up at first, but had basically asked her for water. And and she didn't, you know, the mom's like, ah, oh, you know what, we, we, we use up all our water, blah, blah, blah. And as I was, I was walking by, and then like when I'm like 10 steps by, I was like, why didn't I invite her in? Why didn't I say, you know what, we can bring water to you? You know, it's just because in that moment, at that day, that morning, I had other things that I was, that, that was my attitude. I wasn't in a bad mood. I just, like, whatever. I had things to do. I had to be, to get in my office and all this other stuff. And I didn't think about it until, you know, the opportunity was gone. And I, and I wonder if we have that gospel sharing attitude, you know, what's going to happen when we look that, when we, when we think, even though, even though it's not, always right, but when we think that God brings people across our path every day, some of them we see every day, some of them just like this woman walking by who may, I may never see again. There's a reason for that. But his church, his people, they have a gospel-sharing attitude directed by the Holy Spirit. We see what his church is. And when we understand what his church is, we understand more of who he is. Christianity is not about convincing the rest of the world that it's wrong and that Christianity is right. Gospel sharing is bringing to the world the only hope, the only way of salvation. It's bringing God's plan, God's purpose. It's a demonstration of God's love. And the world might interpret it in different ways. But if that's who we are and why we do it, why would we not have a gospel-sharing attitude? 